Hi, it's Deanne here, Dr. Deanne Ross. I'm the love theorist and I'm talking to you today about a, um, a continuing concern I have around the issue of seclusion and restraint of people who are in mental health facilities, often against their wishes for uh, care and treatment of their mental health issues. If you haven't already heard the preceding podcast called When Care Turns to Torture, you may find it useful to listen to that sometime soon. I kind of situate there my ethical position of why I think it is an incredibly troubling uh, issue in our society, what I call a problematic of violence. And one of the spaces where the love theory which I'm developing can be brought to bear to bring about non-violence and a more loving response to people who are distressed. Sometimes that includes aggression. Um, and in all of what I'm looking at is to understand the drivers of the scenarios, the, the very disturbing scenarios where somebody becomes secluded. And it is not necessarily um, helpful to only think or even think about the behaviour of the person being secluded in the moment because they, they are in a very complex ward environment within a complex system of care, mental health care, within a society that is very, that, that is very much into control as much as at times we try to believe we're into care of people with severe and enduring mental health issues. Um, so, so what I'm wanting to do today is just take another step in this space uh, to talk to you a bit more about and to actually set a little bit of a more of a context about an over, with an overview of the mental health system in Australia, then, then actually set set a different kind of leading to what, what I hope you'll find worthwhile um, because it's so impressive is several people's verbatim comments about their experiences of being secluded and treated um, with violence in different ways, uh, including restraint when they've been in mental health facilities. These, these accounts come from the 2021 uh inquiry into mental health systems in New South Wales um, and, uh, and I mean there was one done in New South Wales I think the verbatim accounts come from the, the one done in Victoria and I just want in this the main purpose of this podcast today is to let people's voices stand and Maybe if people can hear and empathise and really get hold of just what that means for the person, even though we don't won't know anything else about them other than that commentary, uh, just to see if that starts to shift how we understand and think about what's what's okay and what's not okay in terms of secluding and restraining people. And, of course, in the preceding podcast, I put the argument that it is a form of torture under international conventions. Okay, so, again, I'd like to thank you for joining me. And if this is your first time to um, the Love Ethic and the Love Theory podcast, I'm um, welcome. I have to say uh, that I need to, right here, right now, um, give a warning. The material is very distressing. Um, and could be so in ways that um, I may not be able to anticipate when I'm actually saying something. So please be really careful with yourself. Um, thank you. Appreciate it. So that when we talk about the mental health services in Australia, these are state-level responsibilities, um, and they're usually community-based where most of the people who who have contact with the mental health service, even if they've had a period of time in a mental health ward in a hospital setting, are usually followed up in the community. This is the, the vast majority of people. So, for example, in the region where I live, in one of the mental health services, at any point in time, the, there would be about 1,000 people who are on on the record as being active clients of the mental health service, and less than 100 of those 1,000 um, are in a mental health ward. But often, um, because it's a, for many people, becoming involved with the mental health system is a crisis situation, 
many do go through the, the hospital emergency services into a mental health ward before being discharged for follow-up in the community. And again, I might have said this last time, I'm sorry if I'm repeating, research shows that 40% of people who end, end up in a mental health facility are, are there against their wishes um, and are being held there under the provisions of the State Mental Health Act. So um, when I started my career, it was one of the most um, disturbing experiences of my life, and I can still feel and smell and see the, the hospital, the mental health hospital that I started my career in, and it was built by convicts in Tasmania, southern Tasmania, and was a very foreboding building. And even then, in, in the late 70s, it was still being used to, to contain and restrain people. At that time, it was people with all sorts of disabilities, not only mental health disabilities. Very frightening place and very disturbing what happened there. And nowadays, mostly, and it's hard to generalise, most mental health facilities are within a public hospital situation. Um, and even so, uh, they can be different wards to other wards. And one of the first signs of the difference is as you approach a mental health ward, they are usually uh, locked. And so there is no free coming and going in the ward. You have to explain why you're there. It's quite a confronting moment as you approach a ward. And remember, this is also people who are wanting to visit and know what's happening to their loved ones who might be an impatient at the time. So it's it's very it's a very confronting moment. Um, and, and mostly, though, when you're in a ward situation, people are ambulant. They're not bedridden, which is actually quite different if you think about other wards in hospitals. Um, and there's a, quite a diversity of people and it can be, they can be very busy places uh, and a lot of staff coming and going uh, and throughout the day. Okay, so typically but not always, uh, people, people uh, have shared bedrooms, which again is far from desirable in terms of privacy um, and, and also sense of safety for people and sometimes uh, Sometimes, though, the newer facilities do provide individual rooms with their own ensuite bathrooms. So it can be very confronting for a person who might be quite distressed, who will be quite distressed, to be in a mental health ward that looks and feels very different to what they might be expecting to, to come into um, in a hospital setting. So what happens on the wards is that is quite variable and some it can range from I have seen some incredibly beautiful things happen on mental health wards where for example a staff member may be really good at playing guitar and singing and they will bring their guitar and sit with people who wish to and have sing-alongs in the quieter moments especially in the overnight shift but not only um, and you know like that just really low-key kind-hearted enjoyable moment I think is incredibly precious um, so but that's not part of what's a uh, structured therapy program and I've certainly been in ward facilities where there are no group-based or other types of therapy for people and uh, where people are left to their own devices pretty much to occupy themselves throughout the day um, and where medication is the prime therapy that's used and of course there are also um, individual one-on-one -on -one contacts with people by different uh, professional staff and sometimes some wards have peer mentor support staff as well from offered by people who've had a lived experience of mental health. So many patients I have seen this and it's kind of it's, it's very sad when it comes to this, this level of control of people. Many patients spend their days trying to get a nurse to escort them off hospital grounds so they can have a smoke. Patients can be searched for drugs and weapons as they re-enter the ward from daily. These are just a couple of things that can actually be very dehumanising and take away people's sense of autonomy and well-being, which is, of course, what is needed for people to recover from the distressing situation they're experiencing. 
the other comment just as a, as a leading to to this whole um, podcast is that it's very routinized and very structured what happens in a mental health facility um, and often often but not always there is what's called a pq facility which is a psychiatric intensive care unit and it can be its own self-contained space where again there's another usually locked door that only staff can come and go where there are a smaller number of beds and specialist more intensive care of people in that space within that pq space there can be but not always um, a seclusion room and they are single rooms with no no windows except there may be a small window in the door which is kept locked and nobody goes freely there to a seclusion room it will typically have uh, a mattress on the floor but very little else okay so so even just describing that you can get a feel for how shocking it would be to be in a space like that one of the things that happens, um, so we have people coming into mental health facilities who are distressed, desperate, confused, also not wanting to be there often, or their families may want them to be there because they're worried about them. So like there's complexity of what, what happens for people and how they're feeling coming into these spaces. And at the same time, uh, what can happen is people can be discharged uh, really quickly without necessarily getting a sense of what's been, what's happening and what, what they need or asking and being heard around what they need. Um, and so these high levels of discharges due to bed shortages can, can cut across what might be um, important therapy and connections for people while they're in the facility. Um, and um, so I, I mentioned that almost half the patients, inpatients um, at any point in time uh, are subject to the Mental Health Act. And what, there's a lot involved in this. It's a very, very um, important piece of legislation because of the extreme control it exercises over people. And basically under certain circumstances, uh, people can be can be taken to a place of safety, which is usually uh, an emergency department in a public hospital for the purposes of assessment against their wishes. Um, and there's a lot of detail that goes with this. They have to have, have to be seen to possibly have a mental illness and to be at imminent risk of harm to themselves or others and are declining to go to the emergency department for a mental health assessment. And it goes on from there. So if anybody listening has been in this situation, um, I, I can only say that it just must be almost impossible to find the words to describe what that is like for you. Despite decades of working in the mental health system, um, I've, I've rarely seen people who are patients in the facility being explained what their rights are. Um, and especially where people feel aggrieved about being hospitalised. Few people seek legal aid to understand their rights. And, of course, this is a very troubling situation in, in terms of people's basic human rights being upheld. It can be difficult for family and friends to know what's happening to the person who's in the inpatient facility. And many carer groups have long protested about their lack of involvement in their loved one's treatment decisions Again, it's a delicate area in terms of who who gets to say what about a person's well-being um, and how people connect in a, in a public mental health facility to have those kinds of discussions. Some patients I've seen are discharged to discharged, discharged to family without the family knowing they're coming and without any information about their medication and mental health situation. Some people are discharged to no secure accommodation. In both instances, I've certainly been part of trying to make sure that doesn't happen in the past, but it also does happen still. The immediate days after discharge are recognised as ones of heightened risk for the person who's been discharged. And for this reason, they usually receive follow-up uh, within a 24-hour period by a community-based practitioner. Sometimes this may only be by phone. 
So, you know, going into whatever is happening for a person leading into a period of hospitalisation can be extremely distressing and turn their lives upside down and leave the person really depleted of their reserves and resilience. The experience of being in a mental health facility can have some mixed experiences for sure um, for people and then being discharged can keep that level of heightened risk happening as well. So so there's a lot that happens for a person um, and the people who love them around around them um, when a person is admitted to a mental health facility. I think one of the big issues that happens in the broader society is what I mentioned last time, is the stigma for people about some types of mental illness, um, especially people's fear of people, people being violent when they're not in control of themselves and their actions. And I, I, I understand that. And the problem for me, I guess, is that that really filters through and really can affect in intricate ways, how a person is treated in a mental health facility. And I, I don't focus on it in this podcast, but just to say research shows, and, and this has to be some of the most concerning research, really, research shows that mental health, that many mental health practitioners in mental health facilities themselves hold prejudice, prejudices against people with mental health issues. Um, and... I've certainly had conversations with people who've said how how being feeling the stigma from people can be one of the most devastating parts of their experience. Just give you a little sense of how I came to um, have another think about the book One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey, which was published in 1962. This might seem like a random thought given what I was just talking about. But you know, it's it's in it's in the public consciousness these kinds of prejudices that I'm talking about of fear and, and not understanding and prejudging people in negative ways or certainly limiting ways that it's in the in the public domain where people tend to get their messages and sense of what is what is happening within mental health facilities, um, which I think is one of the most has historically been one of the most problematic. Um, areas to do with mental health services. Uh, Ken Kesey's book, as I said, um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, is a classic example of the way messages can infiltrate into what is seen to be the norm around what happens in mental health facilities. And of course, it's dramatised and it's not based on a true account, but it was, it's become what some people call a cult classic, which is a little worrying, I have to say, and also was made into a movie, which is how even more people came to see it. Um, and and I'm going to actually do something a little bit kind of, I guess, evocative uh, after introducing a little bit about my experience, a bit more about my experiences as a social worker in the mental health service, then actually read segments from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and make some comments about that because what I'm what I'm hoping that the the accounts, the stories of people with lived experience will will hold evidence of today is that we have to resist these popularized, stylized violence imbued, um, dramatized kind of accounts of what happens and this is not to ignore the violence that happens but when no no solution is given or no ways of thinking differently are given in these what become really popular books or movies it just leaves it leaves it leaves it up to the people who have the lived experience to place themselves out in the public space to tell their stories in the hope that someday something will change. And I think that's really unfair to keep asking people to do that when nothing changes. Okay, so, you know, early in my career, back in the 70s and 80s, there was very little public debate and almost no readily acceptable information about mental illness and how hospitals, mental hospitals function. Like many other people at the time and with no professional experience to draw on initially, 
Ken Keesler's book, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, shaped my initial sense of what the worst kind of scenario would be that I could expect working in a mental health facility. Keesler's book is one of the most well-known fictitious accounts of a mental health ward. And as I said, it was further ensconced into the popular imaginary by the film by the same name starring Jack Nicholson. The institutionalisation of patients and staff in, and staff get institutionalised in a different kind of way, but it, it is it is part of what causes these closed systems uh, where extreme behaviours can be seen to be normal. Um, and extreme examples of violence uh, captured many of the public's worst in the book, captured many of the public's worst fears and some of the worst experiences of mental hospitals. The book was written at a time when, as I say, it's very little known what happened behind the walls, a real mystique or a real, a real dread and fear um, uh, in what are now infamous places uh, like the old uh, hospital I was talking about in Tasmania. At the height of the total institutional approach to responding to people with severe and enduring mental illnesses, um, the book and the film were warning beacons to anyone who would listen of what needed to change to protect the rights of some of the most powerless and unwell citizens in our society. So I'm kind of trying to pivot with the book to say, hey, look, you know, you can critique it in terms of it not being an accurate account and over-dramatising what happens in mental health facilities. At the same time, um, we can say, actually, as I will show in some examples in a second, um, it does capture something of, of the truth uh, for what happens to some people. So what I'm doing is, is going to share with you um, just briefly some excerpts from Keith's book to bring a focus to some of the worst travesties of human of human rights for people in the name of care. And why, what I'm trying to do here is to show that the echoes of these travesties are still reverberating in contemporary mental health systems, despite all the major reports and all the inquiries. We have some still very concerning situations. So I've changed, just to say, I've changed the term that Pisa uses um, ward assistance, and I won't say the name that he uses, uh, toward is to avoid racist connotations. The excerpts I've selected are from the perspective of Chief Bromden, and if you haven't read, read the book, he was the longest serving inmate on the ward and isn't that in interested in language inmate. Um, Bromden spends his days sweeping the floors around the ward and in so doing notices much of what is happening because the guys are, uh, because he's, he's using the guys that he's deaf and mute. Nurse Ratchet, sometimes referred to as Big Nurse, rules the ward of all male patients with extreme control, which is often achieved through coercion and violence toward the inmates. So Chief Bromden describes her in a very visceral, cold, ready-to-explode set of observations, and this is directly from Keyes' book. The Big Nurse tends to get real put out if something keeps her outfit from running like a smooth, accurate, precision-made machine. The slightest thing messier out of kilter or in the way ties her into a little white knot of tight, smiled fury. She walks around with that same dull smile crimped between her chin and her nose and that same calm whir coming from her eyes. But down inside of her, she's as, she's as tense as still. I know it. I can feel it and she doesn't relax her hair till she gets the nuisance attended to, what she calls adjusting to surroundings. Under her rule, the ward inside is almost completely adjusted to surroundings. I saw a less extreme version of this kind of control and adjusting patients to the ward in my career. The most evident symptom was the emphasis on staff timetables and routines that patients had to fit into. And this is a little segment again from the Kesey book. Efficiency locks the ward like a watchman's clock. I had seen some patients waiting hours for someone to approve their day leave. The nurse unit manager's uh, nuns' manner and way of interacting with staff and patients on wards was one of the most 
impactful influences on the war atmosphere. This is not to blame and criticise nuns who have a very complex job. Just to, just to say, in many instances, I believe they needed more support to do their jobs. This became evident when shift change to me, the influence of nuns and some of the senior people um, running the ward, that when shift changes led to different nuns and approaches with noticeable changes in the atmosphere permeating through the whole ward. The other major impact on ward atmosphere was any escalating distress or anger, and more importantly, how this was responded to. Wards that had seclusion rooms always felt more tense and staff were more alert and less relaxed with patients. When that seclusion room was used or threatened to be used, the fear hung in the air and made it hard for patients to breathe. It became clear early in Keezy's book, for example, you're drawing again on Keezy, that Chief Bromden had been subjected to repeated inhumane treatment. And I'm just going to read how he um, fictitiously describes this treatment. And, and this is from Chief Bromden's point of view. When the fog clears to where I can see, I'm sitting in the day room. They didn't take me to the shop shop this time. I remember they took me out of the shaving room and locked me in seclusion. I don't remember if I got breakfast or not. Probably not. I can call to mind some mornings locked in seclusion. The wardies keep bringing seconds of everything, supposed to be for me, but they eat it instead. Till all three of them get breakfast, while I lay there on that pea-stinking mattress, watching them wipe up egg with toast. I can smell the grease and hear them chew the toast. Other mornings, they bring me cold mush and force me to eat it without it even being salted. This morning, I plain don't remember. They got enough of those things they call pills down me, so I don't know a thing till I hear the ward door open. That ward door opening means it's at least eight o'clock. Means maybe there's been an hour and a half I was out cold in that seclusion room when the technical staff could have come in and installed anything the big nurse ordered and I wouldn't have had the slightest notion what. Just a comment here for me. Chief Bromden gives an introduction to a typical day on the inpatient ward while still in the seclusion room. So routinized are the activities that he can tell what's happening. Back to the book. I hear the noise at the wall door, off up the hall out of my sight. That door starts opening eight at eight and opens and closes a thousand times a day. Kashash, click. Every morning we sit lined up on each side of the day room, mixing jigsaw puzzles after breakfast, listen for a key to hit the lock and waiting to see who's coming in. There's not a whole lot else to do. Sometimes at the door, it is the young resident in early so he can watch what we like before medication, BM, they call it, before medication. Sometimes it's a wife visiting there on high heels with a purse held tightly over her belly. Sometimes it's a clutch of grade school teachers being led on a tour by that full public relations man who's always clapping his wet hands together and saying how overjoyed he is that mental hospitals have eliminated all the old-fashioned cruelty. What a cheery atmosphere, don't you agree? He'll bustle around the school teachers who are hunched together for safety, clapping his hands together. Oh, I think back in the old days, on the filth, the bad food, even, yes, brutality, Oh, I realise, ladies, that we have come a long way in our campaign. That's the end of that uh, quote from the book for the moment. Examples of old-fashioned cruelty seem to be seem to be still used in Key's book with unsettling accounts of troublemakers going to the shop, 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 that is the electroconvulsive treatment, or having an installation in their head, uh, what were called frontal lobotomies. The patient would disappear for days and come back silenced and withdrawn. From the book, the installations they do nowadays are generally successful. The technicians got more skill and experience. No more of the buttonholes in the forehead, no cutting at all. They go in through the eye sockets. Back to my commentary. 
there are frequent suggestive scenarios of new admissions being sexually assaulted by the wardies as a matter of course. These very disturbing scenes are indicated by the wardies searching for the Vaseline on the pretext of making sure the injection goes into the patient's buttocks more easily. Sometimes the scene alludes to nurse ratchet knowing this is happening. Research shows that sexual assault of inpatients by staff is a significant issue and can include patients sexually assaulting other patients. While invasive surgery is no longer permitted on mental patients, it remains part of the popular imaginary. However, the invasive intervention of electroconvulsive therapy continues to be used, even though there is research that shows it can have long-term memory impacts especially for women relating to their sense of self. There is a strong use of and sometimes an over-reliance on medication that can severely impede the functioning of patients. In the absence of less restrictive treatment modalities, it can be experienced as a continuing form of cruelty to over-medicate people. The risk of sexual and other forms of assault was not proactively addressed in the mental health facilities where I worked. Wards typically have four or six beds to rooms separated by curtains. Bathrooms are not lockable, but are usually for single person use only. It's not feasible to monitor all staff and patient interactions and safety cannot be assured. Echoes from Kesey's writing through the decades. Research that sought mental patients' views on what would reduce the use of seclusion and restraint has the themes of staff needing to be more respectful, to listen and be empathic, and a more patient-centred and improved ward environment. Patients explain that the use of restrictive practices, like seclusion and restraint, undermines trust in the staff and increases their resentment, and with this, uh, their resistance to receiving treatment. So I, there is so much in this whole area of mental health, um, include, including, as I was talked about just briefly, the norms in society that affect how we think about people who have severe and enduring mental illness. Um, and it's really worth, if you've ever got time, to have a look at, for example, the state of Victoria's Royal Commission into their mental health system from 2021, um, because their, their commentary, the commissioner's commentary, as well as, and in particular, the people with lived experience accounts, are the best evidence we have of what's going on on the inside of systems uh, that really need to be caring about people who are highly vulnerable at certain points in their lives. I just will give you a sense of how the commissioners were summarising uh, what they heard from an incredible range of hearings from lay people with lived experience to people who love them to workers in the mental health systems, advocates and other agencies and organisations who support people outside the government mental health system. Like it is really quite quite an important set of documents. So the Commission has summarised some of the concerns they heard from, as I was saying, a range of witnesses at the public hearings and to just name a few. People wanted to get, get help to be told that they were not sick enough or not suicidal enough to receive care. The desperation of carers, especially young carers, who struggle to stand in the gaps between services and provide support for their loved ones. The disparity in support for those with physical health needs and those with mental health needs. One parent told us about the stark difference in the support they receive for one child with cancer and one with a mental health condition. The extreme consequences of suicide or intimidation and harm to oneself and others and the un unforgettable effect this has across families, friends and communities. Elsewhere in their report, the Commission was right. Like compulsory treatment, the use of seclusion and restraint was also identified as having a profound and dehumanising impact on people. Um, terms that consumers use to describe their experiences of physical restraint were triggering, disempowering, traumatising, controlled. One said, I shouldn't 
we shouldn't be held down and forced medication at an inpatient unit. Very triggering for someone with a sexual abuse history. Chemical restraints and forcing people into beds is not the way for people to get better. This is just a way for people to be controlled. And coming to the last comment from the commissioners for now. The use of seclusion and restraint can have long-lasting consequences for people. The Commission has heard that for many people, the use of these practices has stayed with them, affecting their lives even years after the event itself. One person said, I continue to have nightmares about being locked in that room for over seven years afterwards. I felt like an animal. I do not feel that at any point I was treated with dignity, like a child, which I was, or even as a human being. I feel like my spirit broke over those years. I cannot count the amount of times I have been shackled to trolleys or beds. I often wake up at night feeling like I am back there. I never once received any kind of debriefing for the trauma I have endured in the inpatient facilities. Deeply troubling that mental health activists and advocates have been trying, have been identifying these experiences for many years in many countries. Nevertheless, it is possible that a royal commission might add some more weight and can amplify this long-standing problematic of violence. I hope you're going okay. It's pretty pretty tough, isn't it, to hear hear what's on the public record. This is known realities of what's happening to people in our society. So this this next piece is a contribution given by a person with a lived experience to the Royal Commission. And it's people like Daniel Bolger who we need to give our love and support to for the courage and the contribution uh, they're showing toward something different happening, something better happening here. So Daniel, this is part of Daniel's statement to the Commission. So I first arrived and they more or less were saying, you have to remain calm. And I sort of just went along with that. And then when I got transitioned over to the security guards, I lost my cool again with the way they were grabbing me and like putting me in this room. As soon as I could could see them putting me in the white padded room. I completely flipped. I didn't want to be in that room alone and I just got into, I just got physical with them, started grabbing them and stuff and got pinned down to the ground by six or eight of them. One of them injected me in the butt cheek with something and I felt really groggy for a bit and then just passed out and woke up later. But I want to make it clear, like it wasn't, I was, I was being aggressive toward them as well. So I do understand that side of things as well. But I woke up hours later and I was in a white padded room and there was a window and I saw this clock and I was just really, really tripped out like. And I saw these three nurses and they just had their paper and their notepads. And I said, where am I? What's going on? And they didn't explain anything. And I just got super scared. Like I felt never been in this headspace before and just, yeah, like the feeling is like it's very hard to explain. And essentially that was when I had my first psychotic episode through drug-induced psychosis. Before that, I remember being in the room and the three nurses weren't talking to me and I was getting aggressive again, like yelling out the window, what's going on? Tell me where you are. And a security guard who previously pinned me down said, you're in the hospital, right? How about you and I get a bottle of Coke and some chips? If you calm down, someone will see you in the morning. And just having that conversation and considering what happened hours before, he opened up the door and gave me the Coke and chips. And it immediately made me feel like a human, just having that human interaction. I was given my medication, but there was no communication from the staff like what was really happening. No, like, this is what's going to happen. This is the process. It was just like, so that was one thing that really made things worse. The uncertainty of what was happening, 
And I just wanted to have answers. And as soon as you wanted to ask something to the staff, they would just, it would look, it would, it would seem like you're asking the wrong, like a bad question. What's going on with me and stuff? They weren't too kindly about that. I was transitioned into the main ward and from there, yeah, you, you get like, you get, you have your medication, which you don't really know what it is. They tell you what it is and they tell you what it's for and you have to have them three times a day. You have your, have your meals. The food there is very average. My dad came in first and just said he was there for me and everything. And then my mum came in and she just, it was, it was very hard for her. She started crying and stuff like seeing me. I'd lost a lot of weight. I was just a different person than that. Even the 17-year-old me, when I was still a healthy enough young guy, to see her son just completely destroy his life. And considering my dad's brother, my uncle, ended his own life in his 20s when he was roughly 25 or something, through ended his own life. So with schizophrenia, so they were very concerned that I was going to have those severe mental health issues in the future. And no parent should have to go through that. To see their kid go through that, it was more hard on them than it was on me, put it that way. So that's Daniel Bolger, um, and I am deliberately not giving accounts of the person's whole life situation at this stage. Uh, I just really want the profound devastation of that part of his story uh, to stand um, and for us to witness that at this time. This is a story provided on the public account in the Royal Commission by Janet Nager. I had what was in those days called, I don't think you have them anymore, nerves breakdown. In fact, I had several, multiple, and many, many, many nerves breakdowns. So I suspect I'm not nervous anymore. The result of that was multiple hospitalizations, multiple cures tried on me, and multiple everything else tried on me as well. And after utilizing most of the private hospital systems to the last point of possibility, I was then moved in to become a guest of Her Majesty at one of the large institutions in Sydney. My initial breakdown was around about 1969, and I was officially discharged with question marks over it in 1979, so pretty well a decade of my life. I received multiple diagnoses. The most persistent one was paranoid schizophrenia, which I probably, which I suspect is probably what I still have. I was institutionalised, yes, institutionalised. The commissioner asks Jeanette, can you describe the hallmarks of your experience at that place? Well, I'll preface it by saying there were wonderful, committed and marvellous, humane staff there. There were, parallel to that, monsters who were in disguise of nursing professionals and care professionals. After I left, I did a quick survey of people I knew who'd been through, and I only ever met one who said, they hadn't been sexually abused. And that pretty well confirms to anyone else I speak to on a person-to-person -person basis who were in care situations. I think you could sum up the experience, apart from the wonderful staff, who were horrendously marvellous in the circumstances that they were placed. There were staff who you just had to know. They were on duty to know that one of you was going that night. So that was one aspect of it. The other aspect is the amount of emotional abuse, the amount of physical abuse that went on, and I became pretty good at that myself. I was a very excellent responder to violence. In other words, I was extremely violent myself. And I understand that that now to be a reaction to the anger at the brazenness of people to claim they were health professionals and at the same time turn around and create the most inhumane system of care you could possibly imagine. And because we were not competent before the law, no one would listen to what was happening. And those staff who did tell would say to them, we can't do anything. We are helpless to help you. 
So people don't forget how they're treated. People understand, even if it's after the event, what happened, and they recognise lovelessness and injustice, and it hurts deep down inside. Just going to read one last story, and this one is um, a mix of Julie Julie Dempsey speaking in her own voice and someone speaking about her in third person. Julie Dempsey has had more than three decades of experience with the mental health system, and says so she's here to dis- here today despite the system, not because of it. Illness is only ever a few serious stresses and sleepless nights away. You never get back to where you come from. But I have defiantly and gratefully moved forward in my life to a new positive place. Her experiences have included extensive electroconvulsive therapy, which she says was conducted primarily against her will. At the time, she was certified and in a ward. I'd come out of electroconvulsive therapy with a splitting headache, confusion, not sure where I was. Your mind becomes quite battered. You start to submit because you've just lost your fight and you're so confused. You don't even know your personal self anymore. It takes away your essential sense of being and soul. Julie describes one of the lowest points of her life when she was put in the back of a police van. I had been certified by the staff at the hospital emergency department and needed to be transported to a psychiatric unit. As there were no ambulances available, the police van was used instead. I was not violent or agitated and I still don't understand why I had to suffer the indignity of being put in in a police van in front of a packed waiting room full of people in the emergency department when I had done nothing wrong. I just needed treatment. At that moment, I lost my sense of citizenship. If I see police out on the street, I don't feel protected. I feel vulnerable. She also talked about the cold and alienating nature of the support systems and the negative impact compulsory treatment had on her. They weren't like the warmth you'd get from a family member or a friend supporting you through a crisis. They were much more clinical and directed. I don't want to be too critical of psychiatrists. They've helped me keep alive. They have to make some tough decisions to keep people here and living but they can make quite unilateral decisions at times and without much consultation with the rest of the treating team. The seclusions during my hospital stays occurred because I refused medication. I wasn't violent or aggressive to start with. However, staff would surround me with blue gloves and a needle in a kidney dish, which made me feel cornered and threatened. I believe the medication was turning my brain into concrete No one listened to or reassured me. This would go on for weeks until they broke my spirit. Getting out of hospital for me means completely submitting and surrendering to the system, even if I didn't get to feel better within myself. I feel that I must sacrifice my own self-respect and principles. I give in. It's very hard to read those stories of people's experiences and not feel deeply distressed and devastated. And and yet I wanted to have a podcast that wasn't me just saying it's wrong, but for people who've had the experience to give you a sense of how they understand it and experience it and the extreme harm, the ongoing harm and loss that people can experience. So what I want to call this podcast is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Resisting the Legacy. I think people like Janet and Daniel who speak up about such deeply personal, deeply disturbing experiences are the most amazing people I have ever met. And if you follow their life stories to the present time going forward, they are all activists in the community sector. 
all looking to make a difference in any way they can to change the system of care that is not caring for so many people. So I wanted to honour them today um, and I think they are incredible examples of refusing to accept the dramatised version of what happens um, as per Kesey's book, but as you see, their own personal stories of what happened are deeply dramatic, deeply traumatic, um, and their ability to resist, reframe, and actually pivot on their heartbrokenness and look to help others is totally inspirational. Um, but please, I think we should not rely and wait on people to keep speaking up out of their pain as the main way to bring about change to the system. As long ago as the Burdigan Report, which was back in the 70s, which was saying very much what we've heard people say today about their experiences, it was being recognised back there and numerous uh, national level reports and inquiries, um, including by the Human Rights Commission, has made the same comments, the same issues continue to happen. And um, so anyway, just wanted, wanted you to hear from people to have a sense of the profound trouble that is happening in our mental health systems and wherever you can to show interest and concern. And if you are one of the people in the system trying to help others, thank you and do get someone looking out for you too so you can keep your heart able to be there for other people when you witness so much and to the families of people who become hospitalised and have really terrifying experiences. My heart goes out to you and um, please look for someone who can hold, hold your hand through these times. And anyway, that's all from me for now and thank you for listening.